Well, it all started with one self-destructive leap. Shepherds eating breakfast outside the town of Givas, Turkey, were surprised to see a lone sheep jump off a nearby cliff and fall to its death. They were stunned, however, when the rest of the nearly 1,500 sheep in the herd followed, each leaping off of the same cliff. When it was all over, the local Axam newspaper reported that 450 of the sheep perished in a billowy white pile. Those that jumped from the middle and end of the herd were saved as the pile became higher and the fall more cushioned. The estimated loss to the families of the area topped $100,000, an extremely significant amount of money in a country where the average person earns about $2,700 annually. There's nothing we could do, said Nevzat Behan, a member of one of the 26 families whose sheep were grazing together in the herd. Unfortunately, he said, the sheep followed a sheep rather than a shepherd. The prophet Isaiah wrote, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. Isaiah 53, 6. Without a reliable shepherd to guide us and protect us, we become just as vulnerable and prone to being misled as the sheep of Givas, Turkey. Now, maybe you assume I'm thinking of myself as shepherd of this church, and indeed that is what pastor means, shepherd. However, I am merely an under-shepherd. Under Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. John 10. Jesus is the chief, chief shepherd of his church, and yet it is also true that I'm the lead shepherd of a team of shepherds who are called by God to lead this local church. We do so under Christ, and we will answer to God for our leadership. Thankfully, we have a team which spreads out the burden of leadership. We have other pastors, as you know, and even beyond us, there are many of you who have shepherding roles as well. In reality, there are many different spheres of shepherd leadership in a healthy church. Certainly, go group leaders and ministry team leaders serve in this type of shepherd leadership role. In fact, we have many leaders in this church, most without a title. Today's message is for leaders and potential leaders, particularly those who would lead in this church. <clears throat> By the way, if you have any role whatsoever, you represent this church and therefore are a leader. If you play in the band or help on the AV team, you are a leader in this church. If you're a greeter or serve in the kids' ministry, you are a leader. As someone who has been given a role, a trust, a job to do as a part of this church, what you do and say and how you do and say it is church leadership. Others of you can listen today as those who will probably be leading in this church somehow, some way, someday. Why is almost any position or area of service in the church a position of leadership? Because you're part of a team that is trying to win. That's something. And as any school team member will tell you, that means you represent. You're an ambassador for Christ if you are a Christian, and if you're a part of this church somehow, you're an ambassador for this church. You influence people from your position as a part of this church family. And so most of you are leaders, one way or another, at Go Church. 
What am I saying? I'm saying this. If you're not careful, someone might just follow you off a cliff. To influence other people is to lead. Even if you don't have any official position or role, you're probably leading someone. So you lead people whether you realize it or not. As we've been discussing, even in the way that you worship, you lead people. You lead people even with your attitude. Now, do some leadership positions have more influence than others? Sure, and that's why different leadership roles carry heavier responsibility and higher accountability than others. But if you participate at all, you are a leader in this church. Beyond that, virtually everyone is a leader somewhere in one way or another. If you're a parent, you're most, the most important leader in your children's lives. You may be a leader at work. You may be a leader in some other volunteer organization. You may simply lead one or two people who listen to what you have to say when you gather for coffee at the local shop. Maybe you're a leader on social media or with blogs or in some other virtual way. The fact is that almost everyone leads someone somewhere. This will be a message about leadership because that is what our biblical text for today is about. And specifically, our text is about godly leadership. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to be a godly leader in whatever capacity you're privileged to lead. Unfortunately, godliness is not our default mode. <laughs> not even for pastors like me, folks. Nope. Go ahead and kick me off that, that pedestal. Godliness is not my default mode. Nor is it yours. That's why we all need to recall God's standards regularly so that we can just repent and return to leadership that honors God. Today we'll discover the difference between godly and ungodly leadership, and hopefully most of us will be inspired to make some changes. By the way, we're going to give our Old Testament review that we've been doing together as a rest this week, because I simply have too much to cover. So let's get into it. As we continue with what God says through the pen of his prophet Malachi today, we will read a general indictment on the ungodly leadership of the priests during that time. As I mentioned, the most obvious application will be for those of us who are church leaders, but those truths may also be applied to any leader who wants to lead in a way that is pleasing to God. Let's read our text. We've arrived at chapter 2 of Malachi, starting with verse 1. This is what God says. And now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen and if you do not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you'll be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before the people, just as you're not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. 
Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and the priests he addresses here are serving in the rebuilt temple after the exiles had returned from the Babylonian captivity. Here we find God's people at the very end of the final shred of his grace. And by that I mean, this is the last prophet sent to try to straighten them out. And after this, God doesn't say another word to them for about 400 years. Right up until Jesus arrives on the scene. As you may know, the priesthood and the people were even more messed up by then. Were they ever? Sadly, the original audience of this text didn't listen. So after Malachi, there were 400 years of confusion and nonsense. Especially from the leadership of what we could consider a parallel to the church. That is, among the people of God. Right, so through bad leadership... The people of God can really get messed up in such a way as to be floundering for hundreds of years. Let's avoid that if we can, shall we? So in order to apply these verses to ourselves, we need to understand first that in the New Testament church there are no longer priests because Jesus Christ is now the only priest we need. Hebrews chapter 7 specifically tells us that Jesus replaced the old order and the old priesthood. The New Testament also teaches that every believer now serves as his own priest before God, uh, that, that because of the forgiveness we've already received uh, through Christ, no longer a need for that mediator, mediary. Peter, John, and Paul all taught that we are now a kingdom of priests. And so all of these instructions about spiritual leadership can be applied to all of us, at least in principle. On the other hand, we know that there are still biblical leadership roles in the church. Very much so, like pastors and others. And, and so it would make sense to apply this passage especially to those leaders. If you feel like I have a finger pointing at you today, realize there's three pointing back at me, okay? And here's a newsflash. God's idea of godly leadership has not changed since Malachi was written. <laughs> the principles he shared with them apply equally to us. Now, This week, even more than usual, you are going to want to use the listening guide Um, that's found in your program. Fill in those blanks because this is just that kind of sermon. Not all my sermons are this kind of sermon. This is that kind of sermon. I just encourage you. Frankly, you'll engage better. You'll enjoy it more. Today especially, if you follow along in the guide. But of course, it's up to you. Let's see what God says when it comes to leadership among his people. We're going to ask three questions today, and the first question that we will ask is this. I have to forgive me for clearing my throat today a lot. It's got that tickle cough going. It just drives me nuts, but I'll do the best I can. Number one, what does ungodly leadership look like? What does ungodly leadership look like? The question is answered in several places within this passage. Let's read those particular verses again from verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priest, if you do not listen. And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. And then from verse 8, but as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And also from the second half of verse 9, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. We can pull out at least four marks of ungodly leadership from these verses. First of all, ungodly leadership fails to honor God. 
This is the crux of the issue. It's the commandment that these leaders are not taking to heart. They're not giving honor to God. This points back to last week's text where we learned that they are not honoring God as Father. They are not respecting Him as Master, and they are not fearing Him as King. They are not giving God the honor He deserves by the way they're leading. Ask yourself, does my leadership honor God? Or does my leadership take God's grace for granted? Do I consider what God thinks about my leadership? Am I leading for Him or for my own reasons? Am I abusing my power or influence? Maybe I have communication gifts. Am I honoring Him with them or using them to my own ends? Am I actually trying to get honor for myself? Ungodly leadership fails to honor God. Secondly, we see here that ungodly leadership turns aside from the ways of God. We see this in verse 8. It's pretty self-explanatory. If you're turning aside from the way that God wants things done, by definition, your leadership is ungodly. Let's try an example. If you are a father, biblically, you are the spiritual leader of your household. I know that isn't politically correct, but it's biblically correct. So, Dad, you are a leader for God at home. Mom is a leader too, no doubt, but I'm talking to Dad right now because godly leadership is in the home is your primary responsibility. So, Dad, are you a godly leader? Or have you turned aside from the ways of God? How do we know the ways of God? We know from his word and the example of Christ. How would Jesus treat his wife? Well, the Bible indicates the church is his bride and tells us that he sacrificed himself for her and gave up everything for her. Is this the way you treat your wife? If not, you have turned aside from the ways of God and your leadership is ungodly. That's just one example. Wives, we could talk about whether or not you are following the ways of God as well, but it's easier for me to pick on dads. So I'll just say again, ungodly leadership turns aside from the ways of God. Third, ungodly leadership causes others to stumble. We see this in the middle of verse 8. As part of this ongoing indictment against the spiritual leaders of that time, God says, you are causing many to stumble by your instruction. And how is their instruction causing others to stumble? If you remember from previous weeks, they were basically allowing people to go halfway with God. They were allowing and maybe even encouraging half-hearted worship. And notice that apparently the error, error was not so much found in what these leaders were saying, but what, in what they were not saying. This is a big problem in the church today. And it seems like it's especially true in the PNW from what I hear. I've been told that many church leaders in this area may believe the right things, but they won't say it. And guess what? That causes people to stumble. On a broader scale, the priests were teaching people that God was really pretty okay with them, no matter what they did. They had simply lowered the standards of God. They had downplayed and tolerated sin rather than confronting it head on. Theirs was ungodly leadership. I think we all know this is still going on in our churches today. But before you camp out on those other churches, what about you? Don't just think about those other leaders. Don't even just think about your pastor's leadership. Think about your own leadership. Are you causing people to stumble through instruction that lowers God's standard? What about what you refuse to say? 
just don't go there. Or maybe there's some other way that you are causing others to stumble by your instruction. Trust me, you give instructions to somebody, whether you realize it or not. Ungodly leaders cause others to stumble through their instruction. Think about that. Let's do a self-inventory. How are you leading the people you know? Are you leading them toward God? Or are you potentially causing people to stumble? Do other people you influence stand up straighter in Christ because of you? Or do they tend to fall further away from him because of you? Or do they, you know, we should, all think that we, should, we should all think about this. What is the effect of your leadership? Because we'll be held accountable for our leadership. Make sure your leadership is godly and that you're helping people step up rather than causing them to mess up. Fourth, ungodly leadership corrupts the covenant of Levi. Now, obviously, this is going to require some explanation. What is the covenant of Levi? This is a reference to the special deal that God had made with the ancestors of these priests. You can read about the original covenant in Exodus 32, starting with verse 26, where you'll find that the tribe of Levi responded first when Moses said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And when the Levites came forward, God established a special covenant with them. You can read some of the details of what that covenant entails in Numbers 3, verses 44 through 48. I know everybody's writing this down. Or Deuteronomy 33, 8 through 11. By the way, in our, in our go groups, they discuss the sermons. Maybe they'll look at those. To sum up all of that, the Levitical priesthood had some pretty awesome perks. These people got to work for God while being provided for by the people of God. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's my life. And from the tribe of Levi, God also ordained a higher priestly order narrowed down to the sons of Aaron, brother of Moses. Aaron and Moses were both of the tribe of Levi, by the way. But the rest of the Levites, outside of the sons of Aaron, were also considered priests of a more servile sort. And some of them were singers and instrumentalists, and some were gatekeepers, and there were temple assistants who helped with the slaughtering of animals for the sacrificial worship system. There were all kinds of other ministers. But get this, folks, all of them were provided for, and they were provided for by the people who came to the temple to worship. They were paid in our, in our vernacular. In fact, God told these leaders they should not find other employment, but that the people would tithe, that is, give 10% of their income, and that the money and the food and the clothing and all of it would go straight to the Levites. On top of all that, these leaders would get to eat the best cuts of meat from the sacrifices and eat the best bread and drink the best grape juice, and they would receive all of this because they represented God to the people and also represented the people to God. See, this was one of the ways that God would be honored as his leaders were honored. Remember all those animal sacrifices we hate reading about in Scripture? You know, Leviticus and whatnot. Well, not all, but most of those were basically a barbecue. And the priests were the ones who feasted. I mean, they didn't just waste all those bulls and goats and lambs, folks. The Bible says the priests, who again were of the tribe of Levi essentially, essentially cooked and ate all of this with gratitude to the Lord. A lot of people don't realize this, but it's true. People brought their animals and their grain and their fruit of the vine and olive oil and all kinds of stuff, and they put it in the temple storehouses for the Levitical priesthood, which included the higher priest descended from Aaron, and they ate it. 
The people gave their stuff as an act of worship to God. But when it came down to it, this stuff was also to provide for those who were ministering in his name. All of this was planned out and commanded by the Lord in what the Bible calls God's covenant with Levi. See, God's covenant with Levi was a pretty good deal. But these priests in Malachi's time were corrupting it. We know how they were corrupting it from the first chapter, which we've been discussing. They were not honoring God's name. They were not holding up their end of the agreement. A covenant is a two-way partnership. But if one of the parties fails to keep his end of the deal, the covenant is said to be broken or corrupted. We also need to understand that when it comes to a broken covenant, unlike a contract, that doesn't mean it is dissolved or made null and void. God is always ready and waiting to keep his end of the deal as soon as we return to him. And we can see that truth in this text. The heart of all these warnings about ungodly leadership is to lead them to repentance. God wants these leaders to turn away from their ungodly leadership so as to allow the covenant to be restored rather than to remain corrupted. There's still time, and so he's calling them through his prophet to repentance, to repent of their ungodly leadership. So how does this apply to me and you? I've already explained there is no longer a priesthood in the sense that we are all priests and we really all should be leading in different ways in the church. That said, I'm afraid that sometimes we also corrupt God's covenant by our ungodly leadership. We don't literally corrupt the covenant of Levi because that particular covenant has been superseded or fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ. But in principle, when our leadership is ungodly, we corrupt our new covenant relationship with God in such a way that he's not able to bless us or those we are leading as he would like. Just think of the letters to the churches in Revelation where God said they were in danger of having their lampstand removed, which would be an awful lot like a curse or at least the removal of his blessing. The covenant with Levi was originally made specifically because of the willingness of certain Levites to make a stand, to take a stand for God. When others stood by, weak, unsure, and faithless, the Levites were bold and took action for the glory of Yahweh God. In fact, the same covenant was later reestablished through Phinehas, also a member of the Levitical priesthood, who stood up and did something particularly bold to protect the honor of God. After that, the priesthood was restricted to his descendants because of his bold, faith-filled action. So God is saying that these later priests have corrupted the covenant by being such chicken-hearted leaders. They are not leading in the spirit of their forefathers to whom the covenant was originally made. These leaders brought shame to those who came before by their lack of faith and their whiny baby attitudes. Does anyone think this might need to be applied to any of our spiritual leadership today? Oh sure, that's easy to agree with until you remember that you are one of those leaders. So what about you? Are you a stand-up guy or gal or... Are you corrupting the covenant of God with your lack of faith and your chicken-hearted disposition? <laughs> we need more leaders like King Christian X of Denmark, who during the Nazi occupation of his country in World War II noticed a Nazi flag flying over a Danish public building. He immediately called the German commandant, demanding that the flag be taken down at once. The commandant refused. King Christian said, then a soldier would go and take it down. He will be shot threatened the commandant. I think not, replied the king, because I will be that shoulder, soldier. I will be that soldier. 
Within minutes, he had taken the flag down. I don't know if King Christian was really a Christian or not. I haven't researched that. But I would say he was an ex- this was an example of godly leadership and that he led with boldness and faith similar to those Levites with whom God made a covenant. Ungodly leadership fails in the area of faith and therefore corrupts the covenant between God and those who would lead in his name. Fifth, from the second half of verse 9, ungodly leadership shows partiality. I thought long and hard about what God might mean by uh, this phrase, you are showing partiality in the instruction. I asked myself, what does it mean? And then it hit me. This means exactly what it says. The priests not only oversaw the sacrificial system of worship, but they actually instructed the people in the ways of God. They taught the scripture, much, much like I am doing today. Apparently, one of the ways their leadership was lacking or ungodly involved prejudice or favoritism or bias in the instruction. They were considering their audience and watering down their message to keep those people happy, probably for their own sakes. No pastor or Bible study teacher ever does that today, right? Wrong. Let's try an example. This is entirely hypothetical. Let's pretend I had decided to talk about climate change or global warming. Honestly, this is an area where I have some opinions, but I also am willing to admit I really don't know what I'm talking about. I am no expert. Truth is, I should research this more because I have heard facts on both sides, and frankly, since I don't know what to believe, I just go with my preference, which you can probably guess. I wonder if anyone else can admit to possibly not always knowing what they're talking about. I know it's hard to believe, but I don't have time to know everything. Anybody else? Yeah. So the question, of course, is not whether the climate is changing, but whether it's our fault, and even more narrowly, whether or not we can make a major difference without returning to the Stone Age. Can we really fix this as humans? Okay, honestly, I lean toward not being an activist for trying to put an end to climate change, and I might be wrong, uh, but I don't know. What if I'm just afraid to say something with which I know most of you would disagree? What if I were to really come under the conviction that, that the Bible says we should take care of the earth, and, and so we should do something about this climate change thing right now? Would I have the guts to call you to action, even though I know some of you have bumper stickers that tell others where to put their carbon footprint. (laughs) Bob, is he saying he's for climate change or against it? I don't know, Mildred, but we better find a new church just in case. (laughs) Folks, My point is that it's harder not to show partiality in the instruction than you think. Now, personally, I tend to think that if I'm not upsetting a bunch of people, I'm not preaching God's word, but that's just me. So, how might I offend this crowd today? Hmm. I might have to say something you wouldn't hear on Fox News. Okay, Mildred, get your purse. There's more than one way to tickle ears, folks. I can show partiality to most of you by saying things that would offend the culture out there. 
by saying things that may even get me thrown into jail before long. How do I make sure I'm not showing partiality to you in my instruction? Maybe I need to say some things that make you uncomfortable. How am I doing so far? More importantly, what about you? Because again, this sermon is not just about me or your pastors. What would God say to you about your leadership? Ungodly leadership shows partiality in the instruction. Okay, think about it. Where do you have a chance to instruct? Make sure you do so truthfully according to the unchanging word of God and not with partiality based on the audience. Tell your teenage kids or grandkids what they really need to hear. For instance, don't try to be popular with them. Tell them the truth without partiality. So now that we've covered what God has to say regarding the definition of ungodly leadership, let's hear what he has to say in terms of the consequences of leading in an ungodly way. That's our second question. What are the consequences of ungodly leadership? In verses 2 and 3, God says, If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I've cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring. And I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. And then verse 9, God says, So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people. You're going to pull out three consequences from these verses. First of all, ungodly leaders will be cursed by God. We talked about this last week. To be cursed by God is to be cut off from Him, cut off from His people, and cut off from His blessings. That's literally what it means to be cursed by God. Suffice it to say, this is not a good thing or something you want to have happen in your life. As I also mentioned last week, I do realize that this rubs up against some things that changed with Jesus, such as the fact that now nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ if we're saved, if we know Him, and that there's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But let's just understand clearly that God is still judge, and He still disciplines, And so the principle is still true, at least on some level, that God curses or at least no longer blesses spiritual leaders who lead in an ungodly way. If I had time, I could point you to New Testament passages that say as much. Here God says, I will curse your blessings. I think this basically means that whatever good stuff was supposed to be flowing through those leaders to the people would actually become bad stuff. I mean, that's pretty rough. That's what it says. Basically, when you try to bless the people with your ministry or your words or your prayers, it just won't work. It won't work out to be good. It might even cause more problems. You're just going to have a mess. You're going to be constantly cleaning up a mess because your blessings and your prayers are not going to matter anymore. They're not going to work. Your prayers won't be answered. Your ministry won't be effective. Your fruit will dry up. This is just one of the consequences of ungodly leadership. Secondly, from verse 3, ungodly leaders will see their offspring rebuked. The Levitical priesthood was all in the family. There wasn't just a good chance that their children and grandchildren would go into the ministry. It was automatic. What modern people might call nepotism was by God's design. Hmm. But because of this, God was also saying that since their leadership was ungodly, the same would be true for their children and grandchildren. Their offspring would be prone to follow the example of their fathers, and then God would have to rebuke them too. Of course, that is exactly what happened. 
And this went on until Jesus showed up. And remember, he was harder on the religious leadership than anyone else. God wanted these leaders to see that the consequences for their ungodly leadership would not even end with their deaths. And that's true for all of us, by the way. The third consequence God mentions is this. Ungodly leaders will be taken out with the trash. From verse 3, let's hear that again. God says, I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. This is a reference basically to the entrails of the animals that were sacrificed in the system of worship at that time. God had instructed them repeatedly that the waste of the animals, the refuse, should be taken outside the camp and burned. If you've ever field dressed a deer or an elk, you know what we're talking about here. And if you've ever accidentally punctured certain parts, you really know what we're talking about. They were supposed to take this nasty stuff outside the camp and burn it completely. This was to be one of the ways they gave honor to God, by getting the junk out of his presence. There are many ceremonial cleanliness laws in the Bible, and they were designed to uphold the holiness of God. God's warning is clear. Literally speaking, these leaders would wind up with the stinky stuff on their faces. And then, since it was on them, God would need to kick them out of the camp because now they were unclean. Figuratively speaking, they were about to lose their jobs. And as verse 9 puts it, they would be despised and debased by the people. God isn't pulling any punches here. He wants it clear how he feels about ungodly leadership. He says, let me make sure you understand what I mean. Ungodly leaders will eventually be taken out with the rest of the trash, and that, that's how they'll be seen by the people. That's what he says. They'll be despised and debased. But again, this warning is a call for repentance, not a hopeless condemnation. God does not desire for these consequences to happen. He would always much rather his leaders repent. It's a very important understanding we need to have as we study these verses. Clearly, there's still an opportunity for repentance, so there'd be no point in stating these things. God's desires for none of these consequences to happen, but the responsibility is on the leaders, like me and you, to turn away from our wickedness and follow God wholeheartedly once again. Let's ask that third question and cover the rest of our text. What does godly leadership look like? Now, obviously, we could do an entire series on godly leadership and draw from probably just about every book in the Bible. I have almost a full shelf of books in my library on spiritual leadership. But the beauty of expository preaching is that we are limiting ourselves today to what our selected text says about this subject. So let's get back to the Word. Look again at verses 4 through 7, where God says, Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Let's cover a couple background issues here before we get into the application. Here's a trick question for you. Who are we reading about as the good example of leadership in these verses? Look back, look back at verse 4. Whose example of leadership is God pointing to in this passage? Levi? No, not really. We never saw anything special from Levi himself. He was just one of the 12 sons of Israel. As I said, this was a trick question. Remember this, God's covenant did not come to Levi himself, but to his descendants, 
We are not talking about Levi, really, but rather we are talking about people with Levi's genes. But I'm done. Thank you. I needed that. You can always tell the favorite moment in the sermon of the pastor. Seriously, the Levitical covenant came long after Levi was dead. God is referring to the leadership of Aaron, the original high priest, and Moses, his brother, as mentioned. Both of these leaders were of the tribe of Levi, and therefore both were technically included in the original covenant. They are the leaders being put forth as great examples of godly leadership. So keep that in mind. Now, from our text, I see at least seven characteristics of godly leadership. Obviously, I only have time to briefly mention these, but I think you'll see that each one comes straight out of the Scripture. And also, since, as we have explained, these are the direct words, a direct quotation from God, that means these are timelessly, universally, and exactly how God defines godly leadership. First and foremost, verse 5. This is in verse 5. Godly leaders revere God and stand in awe of his name. Godly leaders revere God and stand in awe of his name. This was certainly true of Moses and Aaron. Friends, when you have seen God part the ocean so that you can walk through on dry ground, and when you've seen those around you who defied God get swallowed up by the earth and killed by fiery serpents that appeared out of nowhere, you develop a pretty serious reverence for God. So what about us? Should we feel any differently about God than they did? Is he not the same God? I tell you, he is, and sooner or later, we will see that. <laughs> Indeed, I believe the plagues will return before the end, or at least as a portion of the end. We will see the God of justice again, and that day will be both great and terrible. The book of Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire, and when Jesus returns, this earth will melt away before his presence. He will cleanse this planet of every evil thing. All those who have not received grace through faith in Christ will enter eternal torment for the rejection of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Godly leaders reveal, revere God and stand in awe of His name. If your theology does not allow for any modern-day fear of God, you are not a godly leader by definition. His definition. Second, Godly leaders speak true instruction. Verses 6 and 7 mention this truth. Verse 6 refers to the mouth and verse 7 to the lips. The point is that it's not enough to live out a good example. What is it, St. Francis? One of them said something about just live it, you know, don't have to say anything. Kind of, that was the insinuation. No, we don't just live out a good example. Godly leaders will need to open their mouths and speak the true instruction of God, which is revealed in the Holy Bible, God's Word. Notice our text also says that men or people should seek instruction from godly leaders. I think this means that godly leaders will be so compelling that people will come to hear what they have to say. I believe that currently, especially in the Pacific Northwest, there is a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. I also believe that that, is, that truth is why our church is growing, even as we also offend many with the truth. Third, Godly leaders speak no unrighteousness. Verse six says, 6 says, unrighteousness was not found on his lips. This is a tough one. As the book of James tells us, if you can control your mouth, your tongue, you can control anything. Let's be honest, this is a real challenge. But I think considering the context, 
Uh, this verse actually points to integrity more than anything else. A godly leader means what he says, and he says what he means. President Dwight Eisenhower said, In order to be a leader, a man must have followers. And to have followers, a man must have their confidence. Hence, the supreme quality of a leader is unquestionably integrity. Without it, no real success is possible, no matter whether it is on a section gang, on a football field, in an army, or in an office. If a man's associates find him guilty of phoniness, if they find that he lacks forthright integrity, he will fail. His teachings and actions must square with each other. The first great need, therefore, is integrity and high purpose. This leads to the next truth from our text, also from verse 6. Godly leaders walk with God in peace and uprightness. Godly leaders are peacemakers who practice what they preach. This points back again to Moses, who the Bible says was the meekest man to ever live on earth. All these things were said about Moses, I think specifically, that we've just been reading. You know, with leadership, at some point, it really comes down to actually pulling it off. You have to live it. Nobody but Jesus is perfect, but at some point it really is about putting up or shutting up. So much is written about Moses and how he just flat out got it right. Even when everybody else was messing up, Moses walked with God in peace and uprightness. This is what made him a godly leader. Ask yourself, am I a godly leader? Or is repentance required? Because of Christ, you can start over today. Next, we see at the end of verse 6 that godly leaders turn others back from iniquity. Godly leadership leads people away from sin and toward holiness. This is not popular today because today we're all supposed to be equally sinful, right? All sin is supposedly the same. And we all sin. So that means we're all just the same in our sin. I believe this is one of the most harmful doctrinal errors of our time. And it comes from New Age thinking, which in turn comes from Eastern mysticism rather than the Bible. If we're not careful, this doctrine becomes just another way to excuse sin. I have a whole sermon on that. It's coming soon. Godly leaders turn others away from sin through their own example of moral purity. Fatalism in the area of sin or moral equivalency does not square with New Testament theology. Christian leadership involves overcoming sin through Christ. And it involves leading others to do the same. Of course, no one is perfect. That is not the point. Even Moses had at least one major failure, right? The point is that progress can be made. And we can do better. Someone called the following statement, Zen sarcasm. Do not walk behind me, for I may not lead. Do not walk ahead of me, for I may not follow. Do not walk beside me either. Just pretty much leave me alone. <laughs> I would call that all too common postmodern philosophy. But in fact, the Bible calls us to lead, to follow, and to work together all at the same time. One of the most important ways we need to lead and or follow is away from sin or iniquity. We lead away from iniquity by our example, by our instruction, and by aligning those two things. While I'm here, let me encourage you not to rob yourself of heroes. 
Do not deprive yourself of leaders who would lead you away from iniquity by their example and their instruction. Sure, you should watch out that you don't put someone on a pedestal as infallible or immune to failure. But don't react so strongly the other way that nobody can inspire or lead you away from sin. Godly leaders do just that. Next, verse 7 tells us godly leaders preserve knowledge. Godly leaders preserve knowledge. This makes me think of Pastor Randy Adams, one of our elders here. Dude has a PhD, but that's not the half of it. Randy just flat out knows a lot of stuff. And it's good stuff. He's a great preserver of knowledge, which makes him a solid and unwavering leader. Godly leaders are not swayed by the latest wind of doctrine. Godly leaders have a certain preserving quality. They aren't going off the deep end, even if many others do. Godly leaders don't follow another sheep off a cliff. Also on this point, watch out when someone professes to have new knowledge about God or the Bible, as if nobody was smart enough to figure out for the last 2,000 years. But this man or woman, a self-appointed prophet or prophetess perhaps, finally has the mysteries of God all unlocked and ready for you and I to embrace. Watch out for new knowledge. Godly leaders preserve the knowledge we already have, that which is revealed clearly already in the Word of God. Last, from verse 7, godly leaders are messengers of the Lord of hosts. This was certainly the case for Moses and Aaron, and it's true of the prophet whose words were studying Malachi. In fact, Malachi's name appears here in the Hebrew text not as a name, but as a noun. The word Malachi means messenger of the Lord. And he certainly was that. As a messenger, Malachi was a godly leader. His leadership continues to influence us today. See, God wants leaders who will be his messengers. But what is this message? It's all right there in the Bible. Are you a messenger of the Lord of hosts? Be careful. He who claims to speak for God but actually speaks words of his own making is cursed. His offspring will be rebuked. And in the end, he will be taken out with the trash. The message of God is fully revealed in the book we call the Bible. If you're going to be a godly leader and thereby serve as God's messenger, I strongly suggest you stick with what's in there. As I wrap up, let me simply remind you of the heart of all of these details, which is this. On the way to the revival of His people, God calls His leaders to repentance. Are you getting this? God shows us leaders where we are wrong, warns us of the consequences about to be incurred, and then points us toward the godly leadership of those who went before, like Moses and Aaron, to help light our path forward. What is God saying to you today? I guarantee you you're a leader somewhere. What is He saying to you, fellow leader or future leader in this church, about your leadership here? Is he asking you to repent of some specific aspect of your leadership? Let's spend a moment responding to what God has said in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, you know my heart and how I have been in repentance lately over some things. I've already done business with you because I've been working on this. But others today, maybe, maybe in this moment, there's someone here and probably many who need to repent, to turn away, to bring it to you and say, I need a clean start. I'm turning around.
What is it? Where are you not following the ways of God or all the other things? Give it to Him right now. Turn away from it. Make a new commitment. Lord, I pray too that as we try so hard that we wouldn't try in our own strength but that we would truly rely on you. But even as we do that, as we are a church who, who wants to be real, who is not trying to syncretize with the culture, I pray that someone would show up on a Sunday morning and see something real to realize that following Christ means not being like the world. And that someone would be ready to surrender to Jesus, even today, knowing the journey ahead is a hard one, that we have to carry our cross, but knowing that the end is paradise with you. Forgiveness from God as we turn to Jesus. I pray someone today would just cry out to you in their heart, I want to follow Jesus. I need him in my life. I need his cross to be applied to me, my sin, to be covered by His blood, that I would be at peace with God, receiving His Spirit and made able to live a life that honors Him, that honors you. Thank you for working in our lives, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.